Uh, hey, y'all, I'm Chris Roberts, and for those of you that don't know me, I work with the students here at Student Venues, and I also spend my days teaching in a high school classroom. And one thing that has gotten me to be pretty good at, actually, is reading a room, okay? Just let me use it as an example here, okay? I can look out, and I know that several of you as you look up here at me, and you see this massive physique, you're not supposed to laugh yet. <laughs> I know that you're thinking, wow, I bet that in high school and in maybe in college that Chris must have played Dungeons and Dragons, is what I bet you think, right? <laughs> gotcha. Because I actually didn't start playing D&D until about two years ago. <laughs> Because when I was in high school and in college, I was involved in the way less nerdy debate team, right, John? Yeah, way less nerdy. And I wish I could say that it was just because I was so busy with speech and debate that caused me not to play Dungeons and Dragons. But as a kid from the 80s, yeah, there was this thing called the Satanic Panic that surrounded Dungeons and Dragons. And while I am so thankful that today's teenagers will only know of that because of season four of Stranger Things, no spoilers, <laughs> it was real. And in fact, uh, the magazine Comic Book Resources described it this way. It said, throughout the 80s, multiple books and films painted D&D as morally corrupt and media attention continued to frame the game in the same way. In 1985, 60 Minutes dedicated a full hour to the supposed connection between D&D and satanic rites. And in 1987, Peter Lightheart and George Grant published The Catechism of the New Age, a pamphlet where they introduced the idea that D&D was immoral because Role-playing allowed too much, quote, freedom for critical thinking, which might lead to heretical ideas. Hmm. As a member of the staff here at the venues, I believe I relate to that. With so much focus on the game's apparent corruptive tendencies, parents forced their kids to burn game manuals and figurines. Two things are pretty obvious about this. Number one. If you had comic book resources on your venue's bingo card today, you probably just won. <laughs> and two, it seemed that people were really scared of people engaging in critical thinking. But honestly, the outrage that people felt at the time is in a lot of ways the same outrage that we may feel today, that many of us see now all the time. We see something that we don't understand, and suddenly we want to, to put a box around it, and maybe a box around ourselves, because we don't want to have some kind of corruption between the two, or we don't, we just get weirded out by it, maybe. You know, it happens in lots of areas of our lives, right? We see someone walking down the street wearing a certain baseball cap, and it, and it doesn't matter if it's for a team that we don't like or a political party that we're opposed to. 
then we start to assume things about them and the way they live or the way they think or the way they behave. We hear that someone goes to such and such church or someone has taken their kids to this and that school. Or maybe people are moving into that neighborhood. And it's almost as if we instantaneously come up with this thought of what kind of people they are. It's not a new phenomenon. Today, we're going to be looking at a story that comes out of the Christian Bible in the book of Acts, uh, in chapter 15. Uh, And I hope this morning that it's a story that we'll be able to plot ourselves into to kind of see this story that maybe has some kind of a resolution to this question about what happens when these people come into conflict this way. Maybe there's a way to redefine or redeem this, for lack of a better term, group project where we come together because we're not alone to raise our children, to raise our students, to improve our community, and to improve our world. To give some background here, Acts is a story in the New Testament that was largely written and used by people to see how what we now call the church got started. It's a story about some of the early fights and some of the early successes, some of the early conflicts that people had in the first generation or so after Jesus. Now, we do need to note, by the way, that most of the people that the story involves are Jewish folks who started following the paths of Jesus, this path of love, this path of uh, differentiation, And we need to note that it also includes some stories about Paul and some people who were not Jewish, who were starting to come to the faith, who were starting to see maybe the way that they had been living was a different way than what Jesus had been talking about, and maybe they wanted to follow the way of Jesus. Both groups that we read about in this story are groups who are just trying to figure out their way in this world, honestly. A new system of beliefs or faith sometimes can be shocking, Sometimes it can be hard to wrap our heads around, especially when compared to the way that people were raised. It's a story, by the way, we hear here at the venues all the time uh, of people who are trying to figure out what this world of just radical inclusivity looks like on a Tuesday, where we want to come together to do that when people are trying to figure out if this is the last place of like faith or community or organized religion or whatever before they abandon it altogether. As a teacher, I can also tell you that it's where a lot of us sit this year with this being really the first year back for us from COVID where we know realistically that we're probably going to have school next week. And trying to walk through that path with students who have lived for the last two years in a world where that doesn't happen. It can be complicated. It can lead to fights and conflict. And this morning, I hope that by placing ourselves in this story, we'll be able to figure out how to walk through that conflict together. The story starts out in chapter 15, noting that some people were coming through the town, promoting what we would call a more traditional view of what it meant to follow the religions of the world. It says this in verse one, 
Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. It's actually a part of the story where Paul and his new ways of sharing love with the world around ran into conflict with people who uttered words that we know are some of the most dangerous words possible. We've always done it this way. Honestly, it's really easy for me to put these folks down. They go around and they're trying to force other people into their system of dogmas, their systems of beliefs, their way that they used to do things, the rules that they were raised with. And I wish, kind of, that the book of Acts would have just said, these were bad people who were saying that. It would make it a lot easier for me. But it doesn't say that. What it says instead is that they were just going through saying these things. You know, I have to kind of think that maybe they were just so wrapped up in the system of beliefs that they had been raised with, that's all they knew. They were, they were trying their best. They were just misguided. You know, they didn't have the 2,000 years of history that we do. You know, sometimes I think it's easy for us to forget that. At the time, they didn't know anything about this thing that we would now call Christianity. Because Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. Paul was a Jew. And they were starting to find this weird place where suddenly there were some people who were not Jewish who were like, yeah, I want to follow, but just without some of the specifics that the Jewish customs had put on them. You know, they were stuck in their ways. They preferred things to be the way that they were. And I'll be honest, I can find myself there sometimes, right? I can find myself thinking, huh, I had to do X and Y in order to get where I am. So, so should other people. Or I had to suffer through student loans. <laughs> get a little too close? <laughs> it kind of reminds me of this tweet that says, if you suffered in life, and want other people to suffer as you did because, quote, you turned out fine, you did not, in fact, turn out fine. Mm. That hurts a little, yeah? I'll be honest, the process didn't work, right? The process that these folks were coming in and saying was exclusionary, it was rooted in gender hierarchies, it was rooted in a misunderstanding of God and God's love for everybody. And it probably sounds really familiar to a lot of us about the ways that maybe we grew up. We were told that God only loves you or God only accepts you if you do a certain thing or go to a certain church or love certain people or don't love certain people. This morning, I'm so thankful to tell you that that is not true, that God loves you period, as you are. And this juxtaposes what Paul was doing with what the folks were coming down to say. In verse 3, it says that Paul and Barnabas, who was his friend, 
It says, after they were sent off and were on their way, they told everyone they met as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria about the breakthrough to the non-Jewish outsiders. Everyone who heard the news cheered. It was terrific news. If you want to see us at the venues, cheer. Or see Philip tear up and cheer. It's this. It's the stories that we see on the regular. The stories that start off with something like, I was raised believing I was alone. I was raised with the belief that who I was and what I was told following Jesus looked like were incompatible. I didn't understand it. I felt alienated. And then in so many of those stories, it's the part that we love. Because about halfway through a lot of those stories, it says this sentence. And then I found the venues. And it talks about how they found love in a community that is fully accepting and affirming right where you are. And everything changed. Let me just mention really quickly, for those of you that are a part of our community, you are the reason that that happens. Whether you are a person who plays in the band on Sunday morning, or does sign language, or volunteers to collect the offerings, or make sure that new people are welcomed, or buy someone a beer at 425, or that you're here in a smiling, welcoming face. You are part of the reason that people have these stories that let us cheer. So thank you. Because honestly, without that, we don't have that terrific news. Sometimes I think that we can get in the middle of this fight. This fight between, we want to cheer because it's terrific news, and the, we've always done it this way. Fortunately, while the majority of the Bible, it feels like, is a tension to manage between two sides that seem complicated, and we wrestle through it all the time about this, I don't understand this, and this doesn't make sense, or it seems to be contradictory, I actually think that this is one of those rare places where I think the Bible is kind of clear. You see, the story continues to tell us that Paul and Barnabas make their way to Jerusalem, and they talk to the leaders of the church, they decide to go to talk to people like Peter and James and see if someone can actually settle this controversy for them. It's actually a sentiment that I want to camp out in for the remainder of this morning's teaching. Because after hearing from Paul and Barnabas, James, who was one of the leaders of the church at the time, hands down a decision that I think we could all learn something from. In verse 19, it says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who want to turn to God. Basically, he says this, look, if we are going to practice radical inclusivity, we need to not put up obstacles in the way of people who want to follow love. We want to make sure that we are removing those barriers. We want to make sure that there is no reason that people cannot follow love because of tradition or because of regulations, or because of dogmas. One of our goals here at the venues is to really practice this. 
Now, I'll be honest, do we do it 100% perfectly all the time? Of course not. Of course we mess it up occasionally. But our goal really is to be a place when, when anyone comes here with their critical thoughts that lead to heresy, that they've been told to leave to the side, we say, bring your questions, we want them. When people come to the venues and they're like, I don't, I don't know if I can fit in. I, I've got baggage. In the most venues way possible, we want to quote the musical Rent to them. And I want to say, I'm looking for baggage that goes with mine. When people come and they say, I, I've just been so burned by religion, by people in Southwest Missouri who say that, that these things don't fit, we want to look at you with open arms and say, you are welcome here. You are loved here and you're affirmed here. Because we honestly, in our souls, believe in the sign that is outside that says, you know, we're not for everyone because we are for everyone. We practice radical inclusivity because we believe that if the love of God is not radically inclusive enough to cover everyone, that it's not radical enough to follow it all. I think what James is basically saying is this. We need to start with the assumption that everyone is trying their best and give them the benefit of the doubt. That should be our starting point. It, it makes sense to me, though, by the way, why this isn't easy for us. Many of us here in the U.S., have grown up with this concept called original sin, where we're told that we are bad. We walk around looking for mistakes. We, we are taught as first and second graders, get out your red pen and correct the spelling errors on the papers. We've been loaded down with this burden so heavily that it makes it easy for us to find and to search for the places where other people make mistakes. But what the love of Christ teaches is to show love. What Jesus is asking us to put into practice in this space, he said, look, this isn't hard. In fact, it's the opposite. It's this cycle of grace that allows us to live. I want you to check out this verse that Jesus says. He says this. He says, are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? I think there's a lot of us that could go, check, 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 <laughs> right? Here's what he says, come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. This is such a great sentence, by the way, coming up. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. About a month and change ago, when Philip asked me if I would be willing to share on this weekend about school, this is one of the first things that I told him that I wanted to speak about. I think one of the biggest areas of frustration with schools, and, and I think that this cuts across not just teachers, but I think it cuts to parents, to school boards, to administrators, to the community, is that 
if we really look down deep inside, I think a lot of people start with the assumption that somehow or another we are in competition with each other. When in reality, we're on the same team. If you grew up in school, it's easy to see where this might have come into fruition with group projects, right? <laughs> Many people hated group projects because we were told, or we found out rather, that one person does all the work. <laughs> and that's typically us in our story, right? If we're honest. <laughs> and everyone else just kind of mooches off of it. I think this meme sums it up pretty well. It says this, group projects make me understand why Batman prefers to work alone. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's why we have to push against it, actually. For us to do this thing, this school thing or this church thing or this create a world where every life is driven by love thing, we've got to do it together. We've got to cut through the randomness of you can do this on your own and see that most of the time, the good news is that we have teammates, that we are not alone. <laughs> we have people who are pushing in the same direction, even if they're not necessarily the teammates that we were expecting. One of the things that I have learned as a teacher is that nearly every parent I have ever met has the same goal in mind. They want to see their kids succeed where they did not. They want to see their kid love other people better than they did. They get excited when their kid brings home an A, and they get torn up a little inside when their kid goes through their first heartbreak. We know that parents don't always do it perfectly. Sometimes they lose direction. But deep down, I fully believe that that's what every parent wants. Let me just say also, as someone who sees your kids every day, those of you who have students at Students' Venue, I see your kids on Sunday. And those of you who have students, I see samplings of them every day at work. Let me just tell you honestly, you're doing a good job. You're doing a great job, actually. The kids that I see love and push into inclusivity in ways that my generation did not. The number of times that people introduce themselves by saying, hi, my name is Chris, my pronouns are he, him, so that someone doesn't get misgendered. The number of times that people stand up on the side of making sure that different voices are heard, y'all are doing a good job. As a side note also, as teachers, we feel the same way about your kids. It's often been said that teachers are the people who stay up at night worrying about other people's kids. We get gutted when a kid can't focus in school because life at home is hard. But boy, howdy, do we get excited when a kid tells us that they get it. And they turn to their neighbor and they share it in words that we couldn't relate to that kid, but they understand it deep in their soul. I know there are some imperfect teachers, but I don't know anyone who went into education for a reason other than making the difference in the lives of students. As someone who grew up in the 80s with the satanic panic and knew that we were often the ones who would box out other people's voices, 
sometimes it makes sense to me why we don't listen to everyone. But part of the difference for today's generation is learning that we have to listen to different voices. We can no longer just listen to the people who have always told us the history. I know this is going to be ironic, but we can't always just listen to white dudes with beards. (laughs) We have to listen to the diversity. Because education that doesn't challenge us, that doesn't change us, but rather just tells us about what we already know isn't education. It's indoctrination. Sometimes, like Philip was saying last week, that requires us to unlearn things that we used to hold, beliefs that we held deeply, like you don't start with original goodness. But fortunately for us, Paul does tell us one last thing, and that is what this looks like. Not too long after this confrontation with the people in Jerusalem, Paul is writing to a gathering of people in Corinth who are fighting about which church leaders they should follow. And he writes this. He says, we are gardeners and field workers laboring with God. You are the vineyard, the garden, the house where God dwells. Each serves in a different way and is to build upon with great care. This notion of laboring with God is often translated as being co-workers with God. The Greek word that is used, by the way, there is the word synergy. What's that sound like to y'all? Like synergy, right? Like we're moving in this rhythm of grace with God. That we are figuring out how to not see the worst in each other, but see the best in each other. And somehow, when we do that, when we look at each other and see each other the way that God sees us, as wonderful, as beautiful, as good, as people who are trying their absolute best on their first shot going around this life, Somehow when that happens, there's something beautiful that gets produced. Paul's basically saying that when there is a conflict, that we should instead try to figure out ways to work together. When we all start by believing the best in each other, it allows us to see that we are on the same team. And then we can actually work together. This was an idea that was very, very strong in President Franklin Roosevelt. Last month, I had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. a couple of times, actually. And one of the times, I had the chance to wander around the FDR Memorial. And I saw this statement carved in the stone. This is the picture I took. Sorry, it's not very legible. It says this. The structure of world peace cannot be the work of one man or one party or one nation. It must be a peace which rests upon the cooperative effort of the whole world. With tomorrow being Labor Day, a day where many of us will be off, maybe thinking about the gains that have been made when a group of people came together with one centralized goal, like having weekends, that they use that synergy to push in that direction, I think it may be helpful to read through this together. So this morning, the way that I would like to close is a little different. Uh, We're going to close with a prayer of sorts, if you don't mind. And so we're going to read this together three times. Once for peace, once for education, and then once for love. And then after that, I've got just a few last words, and then I'll have Joey come up here and dismiss us. So will you read them out loud with me? They'll show up a little bit more cleanly this time. It says this. The structure of world peace cannot be the work of one man 
or one party or one nation. It must be a peace which rests on the cooperative effort of the whole world. Let's now do it for education with a slightly different wording. The structure of education cannot be the work of one person or one teacher or one school. It must be an education which rests on the cooperative effort of the whole world. And finally, one time for love. The structure of love cannot be the work of one person or one religion or one action. It must be a love which rests on the cooperative effort of the whole world. My hope for us all today is this, that we will fully embrace that the love of Christ is in us and in others, and that our first step can be that the first thing that we see in others is the best in them, that we choose not to judge them first, but realize that when we see the best in each other, we can truly be co-laborers in bringing love to this world. Please know that you're loved and that you're good, just as you are.